Christians are people of the book. We believe the Bible. We read the Bible. We love the stories of the Bible. And if you read the Bible enough, you come across a lot of larger-than-life stories, right? If the Bible were going to be made into a movie, you would need special effects most of the time to go through all these different stories. They're just incredible, amazing, extraordinary, uh, larger-than-life events. Even some of the stories we've covered in this series as we've walked through the Old Testament would require special effects. Like you've got this global flood that's going to wipe out the whole earth except for a boat bigger than a football field filled with animals of every kind. Or you've got a story where the people are enslaved in the nation of Egypt and to deliver them, God is going to light up Egypt with ten larger-than-life plagues and it's all going to culminate with a sea being parted in the middle. And as we keep going, we're still going to need special effects for all these stories. Because if it's not that, it's going to be the story of a man who's thrown into an ocean and swallowed up by a great fish and then vomited out onto the land. And if it's not that, it's another man thrown into a lion's den and an angel appears and clothes their mouths so that they don't devour him. And here's the thing, as amazing as all those stories are, when you think about it, you have somewhat of a hard time relating because real life doesn't require special effects, right? Your life doesn't require special effects. Your life is much more ordinary and plain and even sometimes mundane. And so the question when you read those larger-than-life stories is, how does God fit into ordinary life? How does God fit into regular life where there are no special effects? How does God fit into my normal life, which is paying bills and working a nine-to-five and raising kids and raking leaves and going on a date and falling in love and getting married and buying groceries? Where does God fit into the normal life that you and I live in? How does God work there? And if you think about that, I think that's one of the reasons why you will be very helped by the book of Ruth that we're talking about today. Because the story of Ruth is a very ordinary story with very ordinary events. And yet, it's that in these plain, ordinary, regular, relatable moments of life, God is at work. Sovereignly, supernaturally present and at work. The story of Ruth is a story you will very easily be able to relate to. It's the story of a family of immigrants. And if ever there was a church that could relate to that, that's Seven Mile Road. All right? So you've got some immigrants who move to a foreign land. And there, the story is about finding work, putting food on the table. It's about this love story between an interracial couple. It's about getting married and life and being widowed. It's about the joys and sorrows that come with ordinary, regular, everyday life. And yet as you read Ruth, you discover that in all of that, God is extraordinarily at work in the ordinary. God is sovereignly present. When you read Ruth, you come away going, God is at work not just when an ark is being loaded with animals and not just when a, a sea is being split in two, God is sovereignly present when a man falls in love or meets a girl. 
God is sovereignly at work when a baby is born, when a nine-to-five day happens, when just the ordinary moments of life, God is present and his invisible, unseen hand is guiding and directing and ordaining and leading and providing and redeeming, redeeming all things together for good. You live an ordinary life, you need Ruth. Because Ruth is going to show you that God is present in the ordinary, redeeming all things together for good. So pray with me for a second for help to see God in that way, and then I'll tell you the story of Ruth together. Let's pray for a moment. Our God, we give you thanks for this time to consider your word and impress on our hearts this morning that you're not just with Moses at the Red Sea or Noah in the ark, you're with us on a Monday morning. You're with us on a Wednesday evening. You're with us in the ordinary moments of life. We pray that you would show yourself to us through your word and that you would reveal to us Jesus. It's him that we want to see even in and through the story and that you would do the same thing in our hearts as you did to the hearts of those two men who were walking the seven-mile road, that their hearts were burning as they came to see and understand the Bible in a way that they had never understood before. Do that same thing with us that we might see fresh and new and we might see Jesus. This is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Shinu read chapter 1 for us and how Ruth gets started, but I want you to hear the beginning again. So this is Ruth chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, we're just going to be in the four chapters of Ruth. You can just leave it open there and I'll show you some verses throughout the story. But Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, this is how it begins. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and his name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. All right, let's pause for a second so I can set the scene of the story for you. Right out of the gate in the book of Ruth, the scene is very bleak. Uh, the clouds are dark gray, and they will remain dark gray for all of chapter 1. There's nothing good that happens in chapter 1. With the very first words, I don't know if you caught them, if you noticed them. With the very first words, we're clued into this is not a good time. Did you notice chapter 1 verse 1 starts, In the days when the judges ruled. If you were here last week, we walk through the book of Judges when we looked at the life of Samson. And if you remember, what was Israel like spiritually in the days of the Judges? If you remember last week, we talked about this vicious cycle that they kept going through, right? They would sin and abandon God. God would hand them over to their oppressors and enemies. They would cry out for mercy and promise never to do it again. God would show compassion, raise up a judge or deliverer, and they would sin and abandon God and cry out. And that cycle happened over and over and over again. In fact, Judges is like the dark ages of Israel's story. You didn't want to live during the, the days of the Judges. This was a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. No one followed God. There was nothing right about the people of God. And so when the story starts out that Ruth happens in the days when the Judges ruled, this is saying this is when Israel was a mess. That's when this story takes place. So it's bad. It gets worse because it says, In the days when the judges ruled, 
there was a famine in the land. And so probably what happened is God would often discipline his people for straying, punish them in some ways. And so the famine is probably some act of discipline from God for their sin. And this famine is so bad that we read that a man from Bethlehem named Elimelech takes his wife and his two sons and they move 50 miles south to Moab. Now that's a detail we read over and it makes no difference to us. It makes perfect sense in our minds, right? If, if you're out of work here, then you find and relocate and find a job where there is work. You, you find a way to provide for your family. And so for us, we read, this man from Bethlehem moves to Moab. No big deal. But that, that's not the way it was back then. To say that an Israelite, a man of God's people, a, a man from Bethlehem moved to Moab is like saying one of you packed your bags, boarded your wife and kids on a plane headed for North Korea, or, or worse, Dallas, right? I mean, this is, this is the last place on earth you want to be. This is not friendly territory. The Israelites hated the Moabites. They were oil and water. They didn't mix. In fact, the Moabites originated from Sodom. And if you've read the Bible before, you know Sodom and Gomorrah. That, those are the cities that God literally torched because that's how wicked they were. That's where Moab comes from. In fact, the story of their origin is even weirder. There's this story where there's this man named Lot who is deceived by his own daughters because they didn't have kids, get him drunk, sleep with him, and in that incest is born a child named Moab. That's where they come from. So you can imagine what the Israelites thought of the Moabites. I mean, they were bottom of the barrel scum, the most wicked, the worst kinds of people. And then when you read Judges, you find that these Moabites had oppressed the Israelites for decades. They had ruled over them. So they hate one another. And so when you're reading this little detail, what you're supposed to get is how bad did things get that an Israelite from Bethlehem would move to Moab for refuge and relief. I mean, that's as bad as it gets. And, and there's even a subtle irony here. Bethlehem literally means house of bread, right? Meaning that the place was so fertile, so good for grain, it was just overflowing with bread. It was literally named the house of bread. And yet the irony is there's no bread now in the house of bread. There's a famine in Bethlehem. That's like if, if Philly ran out of cheesesteaks. You go, this is what you're known for, and now you've got to go to Dallas to get cheesesteaks. That's what it's like to say, you've got to go to Moab for bread. This is bad. It gets much worse. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. So here's what happens. Elimelech sees this famine, and he goes to the last place on earth an Israelite would go. He stays there, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to outrun death, right? He's trying to keep him and his family alive, and it's like he can't outrun this thing. Death catches him now in Moab. And so now Naomi, when you meet her, is a single mom raising two sons in Moab. Picture that for a second. Life as a single mom is hard enough to begin with, now, ladies, imagine if you were an immigrant in North Korea raising two kids as a single mom. So when you meet Naomi, it's bleak and it's dark and it's hard. 
Her life has become exceedingly bitter. She's in this foreign land, far away from home, and she's raising two sons. Her husband has died, but it gets worse. Look at verse 4. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So here's what happens. Now she's, there's a famine in the land. She and her family have moved out for a better life. The husband dies. She's raising two sons in North Korea. And now on top of that, her sons grow up. They marry local Moabite girls. Again, you read that, no big deal, just a detail. That's a big deal that these two covenant children in God's people, Israelites, would have married Moabites is a big deal. If you remember last week, remember that kind of intermarriage was not kosher. And, and you got to pay attention here because the reason it wasn't kosher is not because God has something against interracial marriage. No, the whole story of Ruth is this beautiful love story between an interracial couple. The issue God has is not an interracial marriage. The issue that God has is an interfaith marriage. And that's an issue God has and still has even today. Right? Because the thing is, you can't go, Jesus is the most important thing in my life and not have that shared by the most important person in your life. You can't have, he owns my heart and yet the person I share my heart with doesn't share that reality as well. And so there was no way that you could have a Moabite and an Israelite under the same roof. The Moabites worshipped an idol named Chemosh. And this idol, they believed, required sacrifices. And not just sacrifices, human sacrifices. And not just human sacrifices, child sacrifices. There's no way you're going to worship Chemosh and Yahweh in the same roof. They're not compatible Yahweh and Chemosh are not compatible, neither are their followers. And so it's, it's no small thing to read that these two sons grow up and marry Moabites. And then you read, they're married for 10 years. Now, if, if a couple is married for 10 years, what are you expecting? You're expecting kids. If a couple's been married 10 years and they're walking around, you know over and over again they're going to hear the question of, uh, just you two, no kids? Right, And so in all likelihood, they're struggling with infertility. So it seems like God's hand won't relent, won't give in, won't give up. It's just they're in a foreign land because of a famine in Moab. The husband dies. These two boys marry Moabites. Ten years later, they can't have children. It's bad. It gets worse because then you read that Killian and Malon die. So when you meet Naomi in Ruth chapter 1, she is an immigrant in a foreign land far from home. She has buried her husband. She has now buried her sons. They've given her no grandsons, and she has nothing left. She is a destitute, poor, racially marginalized woman living in a foreign land with no husband, no sons, no grandsons, Her life has turned exceedingly bitter. In fact, that's that's what she says. At the end of chapter 1, she shows up and she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi means 
pleasant and sweet. Pleasant and sweet is the last thing that describes my life. Call me Mara from now on because my life is bitter. I'm not sweet anymore. Nothing about my life is sweet anymore. It's bitter. And by the time you meet Naomi in Ruth chapter 1, she is a bitter old woman who has buried her husband and buried her sons and has no grandsons and has nothing left. And maybe as you read Ruth chapter 1, I want you to hear this for a second. Maybe you go, that feels a lot like life right now. Right before we breeze past this, I want to just pause to say, maybe some of you would go, my life feels a lot like Ruth 1. Like things just go from bad to worse, and it doesn't feel like God's going to lay off or, or give me a break. And before we move on, we should linger here just long enough for a moment to know that one of the things that Ruth teaches us is that God is sovereignly present in your life, in all of life, when times are good and when times are bad. Ruth wants you to know that. The story wants you to know that God is pre and not just present, sovereignly present, meaning he's not just a spectator watching. He is sovereignly ruling, directing, ordaining, guiding, directing. His invisible hand is at work even when life does not go right. When your life feels like it's out of control, Ruth is saying God is still perfectly in control. He's in control and he's sovereignly present when times are good and when times are bad. He is present when there is abundance and when there's famine. He's present when husbands and sons are buried. He is sovereignly present when the womb will not give birth to a child, when it won't open and stays closed. God is sovereign in all of that, leading, directing, guiding, orchestrating, ordaining, directing, providing in all of that. And, and you need to hear that from Ruth 1 because the way that we default work is when some terrible thing happens or some awful moment occurs or when some tragedy occurs, we almost feel instinctively this need to get God off the hook, right? We almost feel like we've got to do God a favor and explain God would never have wanted that. And, and we get why we'd say that. We know God doesn't relish in suffering or sorrow or sin. And, and so it's almost like we've got to do a little bit of PR, control his image a little bit and, and do some public relations because we feel like we've got to explain it away and say God would never allow this kind of evil or this kind of suffering. And yet, I want you to consider that for a second. Are you really helped by the image of a God who really wishes he could stop this evil but he's helpless and can't help but just watch it happen? Does that comfort you any? To think of a God who's really watching this wicked thing happen and he wishes so bad he could intervene, but his hands are tied. He can't do anything. And so he's, he's sort of helplessly watching evil unfold. And the Bible says that's not at all what God is like. God is sovereignly present even in the midst of evil that occurs and suffering that occurs. And so what the Bible will do is the Bible will help you to avoid either extreme. The Bible won't let you swing to the one side that says, you know what, we're all just pawns. 
God's just narrating a play. We're all robots playing our part, and our choices don't matter. This is all just blind fate. And the Bible says, no way. The book of Ruth is full of meaningful choices that matter, that have consequences. Choices matter all over the place. And the Bible says, this is not fate we're, not, we're talking about. This is not some kind of blind determinism. But the Bible also won't let you swing to the other side that says, you know what your life is? You're just like a cork bouncing along on the ocean of chance, just sort of flowing wherever chance takes you. And the Bible says that, that's not it either. You're not just sort of bobbing along as chance directs your life, but rather that while your choices matter and while your moment-by-moment actions matter, God is sovereignly present in all of it orchestrating, ordaining, working. His invisible hand is guiding and directing and leading and redeeming all things to work together for good. And that's what he's doing. Though you don't see it right now, he is working all things together for your good. And so much of the story of Ruth is that is, is about that, is about God doing exactly that, of of turning Naomi's bitterness around and restoring sweetness back into her life, of shifting Mara back into Naomi, of restoring and redeeming her life. And much of that turnaround is going to come through the person of Ruth. Much of that is going to come through this beautiful character you can't help but love when you read her, the story of Ruth. So here's what happens. Naomi is now widowed. She's buried her sons and her husbands. She hears that there's bread again in the house of bread. There's bread. The famine's gone from Bethlehem. So she's decided to return. And so she turns to her daughter-in-laws and says, I got nothing for you. You should go back and live with mom and dad. You should go back to your country. You should go back and they'll find you another husband. Have children. You've got your whole life ahead of you. Go back. I got nothing to offer you. If you come with me to my land, how is a Moabite going to be welcomed in Israel? Right? How's a cowboy welcomed here? Right? This is not going to go well. I got nothing for you back home. And and on top of that, I don't have any sons to give you. Even if I could conceive a son tonight, are you going to wait around till he's born? I got nothing for you. If you come with me, it means you're going to be a widow for the rest of your life with no kids And that's what you're going to be signing up for. So go home. It makes perfect sense. Go home. I have nothing to offer you. And then this is where you see how remarkable this woman Ruth is. Listen to what it says in 1 verse 14 and following. Then they lifted, that's the two daughter-in-laws, they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Here's this incredible, I mean, every every daughter-in-law here should pray for a relationship with her mother-in-law like this, right? 
Not even death is going to separate you from her. And this is what Ruth says, I'm not leaving you. And more importantly, I'm not leaving your God. Now the text doesn't spell it out for you, but here's what happens. Ruth has now become a believer. This is what just happened. She's converted, and not just sort of converted because of marriage. She has genuinely converted so that Yahweh is now her God, so that she is not going back to Chemosh and Moab. She's done with all of that. She says, where you go, I'm going to go. Your people are now my people because your God is now really my God. And she even calls on the name of the Lord, not just generic God. May Yahweh deal with me so severely if anything but death parts me from you. You got to see what she's doing. Because she's saying, I'm coming with you and I'm never coming back. Did you hear that? It's not, I'm going to stay with you till you pass. Did you hear her say, where you die is where I'm going to die. Where you're buried is where I'm going to be buried. So she's saying bye to mom and dad and everything she's ever known. And she's saying, I'm never coming back here because I'm coming with you and nothing but death is going to separate us. She's giving a till death do us part vow to her mother-in-law, right? Nothing is going to separate us. And here's the thing that's craziest about this. Every immigrant that moves to another place does so for a better life. That's why you move. She knows that life is going to get much harder, and yet she moves. In fact, she knows that if she stays here, she's accepted. She's among her people. She's got mom and dad. They could remarry her. She could have kids. She's got status. She won't be an outsider. She'll be in. But if she goes with Naomi, it means she's an outsider and an outcast. She's going to be hated by all the Israelites. She's got no prospect of marriage. She's going to be a widow for the rest of her life, no kids. And what is she even going to do when old Naomi dies? And she still goes, I'm coming. Because Ruth's done this math, and in her mind, here's the math. Option A is I stay here and I have everything without Yahweh. Or option B is I go and I have nothing but Yahweh. And she says option B every time. That life without anything but God is better than life with everything without him. I would rather take life with nothing plus Jesus than have everything without him. And so she is going to go. She's so determined. Verse 18 says that Naomi has nothing left to say. And through Ruth's incredible loyalty and love, it's almost like the clouds are starting to break just a little bit and just a little ray of sunlight starts to come into the story. And you're going to see God wipe the clouds away. This is now chapter 2. Here's what happens. These two widows move back to Bethlehem. And they get to Bethlehem. There's no husbands to provide. So that means Ruth's going to have to go out and figure out a way to put food on the table. She's got her to support and her old mother-in-law to support. And so that's what she says, two, two verses two. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, 
who was of the clan of Elimelech. So here's what's happening. There's a law in Israel where God is providing for all his people, including the poor. And so there was a law, a custom, that one of the ways that God's people were required to take care of the poor is that they were not to harvest along the edges of their grain. They were to purposely leave those out. And if anything dropped along the way as they were harvesting, they weren't supposed to go back and pick it up. They were to leave all of that for the poor that came behind them to glean. It was almost as if God was saying, you are not to maximize profit. You are actually to voluntarily take a loss in profit so that the poor can be provided for. This was God's law to ensure that the poor among his people would be provided for. And that's excellent. And that's great. Except Ruth is not part of God's people. She's a Moabite, which means Israel's not obligated for a second to do any of that. And in fact, the text won't let you forget that. Every time Ruth is mentioned, you see 2 verse 2, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi. It's like the story's not going to let you forget. Wait, 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 wait. She doesn't get a share in any of that. She's a Moabite. And so when she's saying to Naomi, listen, I'm going to go out and see if someone will just show favor to me. That's exactly what she's saying. She's just saying, I'm just hoping and begging that somebody might just show some pity on me and let me go to those edges and glean a little bit so that I can bring it home for us. And the text, it's, it's almost, it makes you laugh. In verse 3 it says, And she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz. It's almost like the story is nudging you in the ribs and saying, did you hear that? She just happened to. Out of all the fields in Israel, wouldn't you know, she just happened to stumble on the field of this man named Boaz. It's this beautiful sort of reminder. Do you see that? God is at work in ordinary, everyday life, in, in, in as ordinary a choice as where she goes to try and glean. God is sovereignly, his invisible hand is directing and guiding and leading and directing all things through their choices according to his will. It's a beautiful reminder. We were upstairs praying before the service started today, and I was just reminded, a few weeks ago, Pastor Dan Coe was here in this pulpit. He's the guy who took a picture of everyone from Boston. He is now a pastor at Seven Mile Road, Boston, and they're getting ready to send him as a church planter to plant another church. Do you know how he got to the church? Shino and I were moving from Boston to come here to plant. I threw up an ad on Craigslist about a couch we needed to get rid of for 50 bucks. And out of all the couches in Boston, and out of all the people in Boston looking for couches, Dan Coe happened to find my couch saw an email from me and saw some Christian verse at the bottom, asked me if I was a Christian. I told him I was. He was looking for a church since he had just come to Boston to go to seminary. The week we leave, we've never even crossed paths, we find out he starts worshiping there, and five years later, he's planting a church through Seven Mile Road, Boston. And it's almost like the text would go, he just happened to find a couch in Malden from a Jay in China. And the text is saying, no way. Do you see this? Ruth just happened to go to Boaz's field. Now, who's Boaz? There's so much we could say about him, but here's what we want to say. Boaz is this very good man. In 2 verse 1, we're introduced to him, and it says, a worthy man named Boaz. 
Worthy there is a word that could mean he's a man of means. He's a man of significance. He's a man of resources. He's a wealthy man. But he's also a man of substance and integrity. He's a worthy man. So this is a good, God-believing, rich man, an old bachelor, right? He's a really good man. And in fact, he's one of the few characters in the Bible where you don't read of any explicit sin, Right? It's almost like the Bible bends backwards to show you some sin in everybody's life. It doesn't even go there with Boaz. He's just a really good man. So he arrives at work that day, and he asks the foreman of his fields, who's that woman working? And so the foreman, the chief of his field, says, that's Naomi, and he, uh, that's Ruth, and he fills him in. This is a Moabite who came with Naomi. She left her father and mother. She left everything to follow Yahweh with us, and she's working, and, and then he even clues us in in what she's like. She's been working from sun up till now. She's barely taken a break for some water. She has just been tirelessly working. And then you get the first interaction between this couple, the first interaction between Ruth and Boaz. Boaz calls her over. Look at two verses, eight and following. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? So that's just Boaz's way of saying, look, she's a Moabite with the Israelite workers. There's a good chance she's going to be harassed or hurt or abused. And so Boaz is saying, I've, I've told everyone no one's to touch you. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband had been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. All right, so hear this. Let's catch up for a second. Ruth is this mar racially marginalized, outcast, destitute, poor widow. And though Boaz has nothing that obligates him, Boaz steps into her life and protects her from harm, right? No one's going to abuse you here. No one's going to hurt you here so don't go to any other field I can guarantee you safety here so keep coming back here he not only does that he provides food and drink for her he says you know what you don't even have to just glean among the poor you glean with the workers so don't wait for someone to drop a bundle you just harvest take as much as you want bring it home to Naomi take as much drink as you want the young men are always drawing up water drink whatever you need do whatever will provide for you and your family and Ruth is just blown away by this undeserved favor. Just blown away. This is what she says. What have I, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? Pause there for a second. Because anyone who's ever experienced grace asks that. Hear that with me for a second. If you've really understood the gospel, that God stepped into your poor, destitute, outcast, impoverished life, and met you with blessing and grace and provision and protection and has treated you in a thousand ways he was not obligated to do, you won't help but say the same thing Ruth did, which is, 
Why have you taken notice of me? Why have I found favor in your eyes? And when you watch this remarkable man and this remarkable woman act, I mean, it's, it's quite remarkable. It's quite amazing. In fact, the word that's used to describe how they act is hesed. They're so loving, it's like hesed love. Now, what that is, is a word that's usually used to describe the way that God loves. That God is the one who is full of hesed love. Hesed love is this unwavering, unconditional, loyal, never stopping, never ending, never going to go anywhere kind of love. And the story is saying, usually that's the kind of love God has, and yet that kind of love is seen in Ruth and Boaz. You want to know what Hesed looks like? Look at how Ruth clings to Naomi. That's Hesed. You want to know what Hesed looks like? Look at how Boaz graciously steps into Ruth's life. That's Hesed. And one of the simple lessons, friends, we should hear from this is that God often shows Hesed love to us through one another. Okay, hear that. Because that's a really simple point. I'm not saying anything profound there, and yet I don't know anything that struck me more this week. That the invisible God, I can't see him, but I can see you. And the way that I come to know of his love is through you. That the invisible love of the invisible God is seen visibly in how we demonstrate love to one another. That's really true. That's not just Christian niceties. That how we experience hesed, God doesn't just drop hesed from the sky onto our lap. God chooses rather to extend hesed to one another through one another. And, and you and I could probably sit all afternoon sharing stories of how we have experienced the love of God through the love of others. That there are certain moments in life that just come that remind you again, God is hesed. He really does think about me, love me. I'll give you one example. I haven't told this story before. I was at Starbucks some years back, something since we moved to Philadelphia. I'm just there on our rant as it happened. I was at Starbucks, right? Just a random day. I'm ordering coffee. I talk to the barista. She knows me, and so she asks about church. There's a random man sitting on the couch who overhears my conversation. So I go to sit down, and this random man asks me about church, asks me about God. He happens to be a Christian as well. So now we're sitting side by side on this random day at a random occurrence at Starbucks, and he starts talking to me about God, and I start telling him about God, and we share how we both came to faith, and I tell him about the church, and he's just so excited about a church being planted. And then out of the blue, he tells me, Listen, I, I want to do something, but you got to say yes, no matter what. And I go, now I'm skeptical and cynical to begin with, and I go, I am not saying yes. He's like, trust me, you just got to say yes, you got to accept uh, whatever it was. And I was like, and so I don't know if it was because he had a magnetic personality or he just seemed really genuine. I said, all right. He reaches into his pocket, he extends his hand, and he gives me $200. Okay, I kid you not. And I told him, Listen, listen, I'm not a poor pastor. My people pay me really well. I don't have any needs. I'm actually really good. We have a home. We're doing fine. And he will not let, let it go. And I said, no, no, I, I honestly don't need this. There's no way I could take this. And he says, I want you to have it. You already said yes. And I said, and I said why would you do this? And he said, God is generous 
And I just think you need to know that God is really generous. Our Father is really generous. I kid you not, I have never heard the man or seen the man or heard from the man again. I sometimes wonder if some angel visited me that day that I just didn't know. Because I'm telling you, I was waiting for him to show up at my door two weeks later and be like, hey, I'm ready to cash in because I'm really skeptical and cynical. I've never heard from him, seen him. I have no idea who he is. And I'll tell you, when I think back of that, I honestly didn't need $200. But what strikes me to my core is that God was thinking about me that day. I don't know if you get that, but God, the world is really big with a lot of people and a lot of stuff going on. And sometimes it's really hard to imagine that you are really on God's mind. And how was God going to show me on a random day at Starbucks, my son, I haven't forgotten you. And I just want you to know I'm generous. And I just want you to know I'm thinking about you except for him to drop hesed in my lap through another. The hesed love of God is seen through your actions towards one another. I can tell you so many times where I've sat in soul care, where we gather for accountability, and I have felt, I can't see God, but the way these brothers have loved me right now, I know God loves. I know God has this never-quitting, loyal, unconditional not judging me, not condemning me, accepting me, warm, hesed love. And I've seen that through visible people. The love of the invisible God is shown through the visible actions of Ruth toward Naomi and Boaz towards Ruth. And you can't help but go, what an incredible God this is. So Boaz loads up Ruth's pockets and plates with as much grain as she can carry she goes home. Here's how the story continues. She tells, she shows Naomi what she's gotten from the day, and Naomi's like, where did you get this? You're supposed to grab some bundles gleaned from the edges. How on earth did you get so much? 2 verse 19, look with me. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. That's like saying, God bless whoever did this kindness to you. And so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and the, name, and the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So here's what Naomi says. Naomi finds out she's been working in Ruth's field. She goes, Thank God. God has not forgotten us. And she even says, did you know this? Boaz is one of our redeemers. Okay, what's that? Why does she say, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers? You can't miss this. Because essentially, this is what the whole story hinges on. You got to get this concept. Because if there's a big idea in the book of Ruth, it's this right here. What she's saying is, and for the sake of time, I'll say it quickly. If you want to go back and read Leviticus 25, you can. You'll find that there was a certain law in Israel that, again, you've already seen, God wanted to provide for his people. One of the ways that he does that is he provided this law called a goel. What's that? If you were back then, land was everything, right? That, that was your way of living. You were in an agricultural society. And so if a man became poor, so poor that he had to sell his land, he was going to be destitute. He was going to die. And so God provided a way 
that a relative, a brother, a, a close kinsman could redeem that land for you. It was an incredibly sacrificial thing to do because I had to pay your debts to get your land back for you. It's of no benefit to me. You see that? A relative, a close kinsman, has to bear this great sacrifice to redeem for another so that they might live. And, and even more important than land was an heir, right? Because the only way to preserve everything in the family was not just to keep your land, but to have a son to be able to pass it to. And so God provided a law there also in Leviticus 25. Again, Goel, a redeemer. And here's what the law said. That if a, woman died as a, if a man died and the woman was a widow and she had no sons, then the law provided that a brother of the dead husband, a relative, could marry this woman and raise a son in the dead man's name so that his name would continue. The land would be restored to this son in the dead man's name. It wouldn't even be yours. It wouldn't be your last name on the kid. It was a relative or a kinsman who would redeem you by marrying you, giving you a son in the dead man's name. And thereby, your family line was preserved. Your land was preserved. This family was not blotted out of the face of the earth. And so being a goel, a kinsman redeemer, is, is this extremely sacrificial, gracious act. You're not gaining anything from it, but at great cost to yourself, you're moving into the life of another to spare them, to save them, to give them renewed life. And this is exactly what Boaz does. He becomes Ruth's Goel, her kinsman redeemer. Now, for the sake of time, because we're already going to be long, so let me, let me give you a quick summary of what happens from here. Naomi finds out that Boaz is a goel. He's a potential kinsman redeemer. He could turn the whole story around. And so, Naomi's a, a mother-in-law, a mom, and she's going to do what any mom with an eligible daughter is going to do. He's going to matchmake. She's going to set her daughter out on a date. So that's what she says. If you read chapter 3, this is what happens. She says, Ruth, every time Boaz sees you, you're smelly and stinky working in the fields. Here's what you're going to do. You take a bath tonight, you get dolled up, you put on some makeup, you wear a nice dress, you do your hair, and you go out. And essentially what she's doing, and there's this sort of strange to us set of circumstances that happen, but what she's doing is she's sending Ruth out on a date with Boaz. And she's going to make this thing come to a crisis, to a head, so that one way or another we're going to find out is Boaz interested or not. That's what the mother-in-law is going to do. She's going to set up this date. Well, they have their date at midnight. And you can imagine the sparks are sort of flying as you read the story. And by the end of their first date, they're ready to be married. Right? It's just like that. By the end of that first date, Boaz is ready to marry Ruth, to redeem her. And so you finally go, all right, the skies are clear, smooth sailing. Life is never smooth sailing, right? There's always twists and curveballs, and life is much more interesting than that. And so very quickly, I'll tell you what happens next. He is more than interested in redeeming her. He loves her. He's going to make her his wife. But he tells her, listen, the only problem is there's another man in line ahead of me. There's a closer kin, a closer relative. And so through a series of events, what happens is you don't even find out this man's name. Mr. So-and-so is sort of the way the Hebrew says it. Sort of just, we don't know. Mr. So-and-so comes, but when he realizes the incredible cost that being a goel will take, he backs out. 
He backs out and which leads the way for Boaz at last to redeem Ruth. And when you get to the end of chapter 4, that's exactly what happens. Boaz marries Ruth. He becomes her Goel. He becomes her kinsman redeemer. So hear this. Boaz takes this poor, destitute, marginalized, outcast, Moabite woman, and through no obligation, right? There was a closer kin who had the responsibility to do it. He would have been off the hook. But through no obligation of the law, yet rather compelled by love, he pays to redeem Ruth, pays a great cost to have her, to redeem her. And if you're following the story, if you're tracking right, you go, what a picture of hesed love. And then the Bible will say, if you like that, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because if you think that's Hesed, and if you think that's what Goel looks like, and if you think what a redeemer, the Bible's going to say, you haven't seen anything yet. These are just shadows. Shadows to a better Goel who's going to do a better redemption. Let me show you one last part of Ruth so that you know I'm not just sticking Jesus onto here. Look at Ruth 4, verses 13 and following, and you'll see the text itself is spring-loaded, ready to show you how this is about someone even better. Verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. By the way, that's not just some detail, right? Ten years she didn't have a kid. And now on her wedding night she's conceived. Because the Lord sovereignly is present in all the details of life. Verse 14, Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. I want you to notice one thing, and then we'll be done. Ruth has a child, okay? And all the women in the neighborhood come, and they scream, A son's been born to Naomi, right? Ruth is the mom, but everyone's shouting about Naomi's son. And the reason is because the story wants to highlight and doesn't want you to miss, do you see how God has completely turned everything around for her? Mara is Naomi again. The clouds are clear again. The sky is bright again. And this old bitter woman now has everything you could possibly want. Her life has been restored. She's got a daughter-in-law that's worth more than seven sons. And that's what all the women in the town scream. What could you want more than a daughter-in-law who loves you better than son, seven sons could? She's got this daughter-in-law, and then she's gone from being this old, bitter woman to a happy old grandmother with a little baby in Bethlehem bouncing at her knee. A little baby in Bethlehem is bouncing on her knee. And who is this grandson of hers? You hear it again, verse 14. 
Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Okay, so you heard redeemer, and immediately we think that's talking about Boaz. But read carefully, it's not Boaz. Because keep reading, and it says, And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Who's the redeemer? It's the one that your daughter-in-law has given birth to. So the story's coming and saying, look through Ruth's offspring, you have a redeemer. Through Ruth's offspring, you have a redeemer whose name is going to be renowned in Israel, who's going to restore you. And it's, it's as if the story said, Boaz was a redeemer. He was great. He's gold. But there's a redeemer coming an offspring, a son of Ruth, who's going to come and restore everything and be the Goel, be the Redeemer. And maybe that doesn't mean much to you until you read that Ruth gives birth to a man named Obed. Big whoop. Well, Obed gives birth to a man named Jesse. Big whoop. Well, Jesse gives birth to a man named David, who becomes Israel's greatest king. You've got a time out there to say, did you just read that Moabite Ruth, servant, outcast, idol-worshipping Ruth, has now become the great-grandmom of David? Except then, you keep reading, and Matthew 1 will say, and David had a son named Solomon, and Solomon had a son named Rehoboam, and he had a son, 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 until he had a son named Joseph, who was from the house of bread, who married a lady named Mary and gave birth to Jesus. Ruth, Moabite, Chemosh-worshipping, destitute, widow, outcast, poor, marginalized Ruth, has been grafted and pulled into the story, not just so that God has redeemed Ruth, but that God brought forth the Redeemer through Ruth. I mean, you, you talk about turning this thing around. It's not even that just God redeemed Ruth. God brought forth the Redeemer through Ruth. God brought forth the Goel through Ruth. And, and I don't know about you, but it hit me this week. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus was part Moabite. They had sons and sons and sons and sons, and you had this pure 100% Israel race, but it's almost like God went out of his way to grab a Moabite to say he's not just Israel's redeemer. He's going to be a goel for all the nations. He's going to be a goel for even the Moabites. Do you know your Savior is part Moabite? He grabs these people into the family line of Jesus and say, you know how far this redemption is going to go? Boaz redeemed one Moabite. This better Goel is going to redeem all the nations of the world. You've got to see yourself in the story. You've got to go, I am outcast and destitute and poor. Like if you could see my soul on the outside of my skin, if you could see your heart on the outside of your skin, 
Look, we, we all pretty here, but if you could see the inside on the outside, you'd go poor, destitute, outcast, sinful, idol worshiping. And Jesus sees that, and he's worthy, full of substance and means and integrity, and he, through no obligation, is compelled by love to redeem me, to redeem you, at great cost to himself, shedding not just silver and coins, but his own body and blood redeems you so that you from a moment of slave go to now we are the bride of Christ, loved and adored by him, brought into his family, cherished by him. We were poor and now we're rich. We were outcast and now we're welcome. We were outsiders, now we're in. And if you get that, you're going to say what Ruth said, which is, why have I found favor in your eyes that you would take notice of me? Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give hope to every person who's heard, every person in our city, in our circles of influence. There's no one outside the scope of your redemption. No one too far, no one too destitute, no one too unworthy, because we're all like that and you've redeemed. With gratitude in our hearts, we thank you for paying a great cost to redeem us, to be our Goel. Why have you taken notice of us that we should find favor in your eyes? We have no answer, but with hearts of gratitude, we say thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.